Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Falta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and we do this weekly podcast as an extension of extension. It's a way of taking research that's currently happening around the world and helping relay it to you who's interested in communicating science. And today we're going to continue a conversation about glyphosate. Now, glyphosate is the herbicide that's used on herbicide-tolerant crops. And since the mid-1990s, its use has gone up significantly because of its application on things like soybeans, sugar beets, or cotton. And as you increase the level of the use of the compound, uh, the folks who are not so excited about biotechnology have made the chemical itself the target of their derision. So currently there are campaigns of ignited all over the world to end the use of this compound, although scientists and farmers feel that it's beneficial. So today we're going to talk to someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. We're going to talk to David Zarek. He's a professor at Odyssey University College, or College University, one of those two ways. And uh, he's been studying the ideas of risk and perceptions of risk and science communication for a long time. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Karen. Happy to be here. Yeah, so Dr. Zarek's with us. He's been uh, studying this forever and has been uh, known online as the risk monger. And his blog is comprehensive and covers all of the topics we'll cover today. So, you know, uh, David, let's get back to the beginning. You know, when did you, well, let's start with you. Um, when did you really start getting excited about risk? And what are some of the things that you've studied and uh, discussed with your background in, uh, you know, philosophy and, you know, uh, risk management? Well, I had been working in the chemical industry in the 1990s, and the, the 90s was really the period where risk was born as a main concept. It wasn't used except by certain anthropologists around the nuclear issue before that. But if you look at everything from the BSE, mad cow disease, through to acrylamide, tainted blood in France, uh, you had issues like dioxins in Belgium, and of course the GMO moratorium in Europe, followed quickly after by uh, the whole MMR debate on vaccines. Risk became quite an interesting uh, topic in the 90s. Now, working in the chemical industry, we understood risk in another way through a toxicological point of view. But I started to see risk um, as a, well, quite a fascinating subject to study. And I found quite a few other people in the 90s doing the same thing. Most of them were philosophers or philosophers of science who found this justified illogic to be quite fascinating. And uh, the deeper we got into it, the more interesting we got into how do we deal with the public you know, perception of risk. <laughs> the justified illogic, huh? <laughs> well, a, a good example. Uh, you could tell me and show me all the evidence you want 
to say that uh, you know power lines don't give me leukemia, but I would never buy a house next to a power line. That's a really good example. And, you know, a good example that really in many ways sets the stage for today's topic. So when did you really get involved in the glyphosate? Uh, I, I don't want to say discussion, because I think you probably took an interest in just the phenomenology around this before you really started discussing it publicly. Well, the I've been involved with glyphosate now for more than four years. And in fact, uh, every time I've put out an article on glyphosate, I kind of say a prayer to myself saying, I hope this is the last one I have to do on this. I've done about 25 now, I believe, at the moment. Uh, but um, at the time when IARC published its monograph 112 on what was supposed to be on uh, insecticides, but they decided to tack glyphosate onto that at the end for some reason, uh, I, um, I was working on developing another concept called activist science. And it was part of a 10-part series I was doing uh, called The Age of Stupid. In fact, back then, if you, um, if you Googled the word stupid, you would find my name on the first uh, top 10 results in Google. So I wasn't too proud of that at the time. Uh, but uh, my idea of an activist scientist is um, a bit of a foil to this abusive term that was called industry science. It was rejected because it had industry funding. It was mainly it was rejected because people didn't like the results. But they so they they called it uh, industry science. So I thought, well, industry science follows rules. They follow you know good lab practice. They follow different procedures. I had worked in the chemical industry for fifteen years, off and on. And so I, I felt that was quite an offensive approach. So I was developing activist scientists, the science as a sort of how not to do science. You know, a regular scientist would gather evidence and draw a conclusion. An activist scientist starts with the conclusion and then looks for the evidence. And when IARC came out with the monograph, I saw this as an excellent example of activist science. I got poured into it. It really does fit that mold because I know that we start with a hypothesis and then gather evidence to support or not support that hypothesis. Uh, they start with a conclusion and find the evidence that supports it and ignore that that does not. And uh, this is really the basis for the IARC decision. So when you talk about the IARC, what is that and how does it relate to the World Health Organization? Well, we hear it all the time, and I, usually red flags go up whenever I hear somebody say the WHO says that glyphosate is a carcinogen. Um, no. IARC is an agency that has been recognized by the WHO, but it is essentially an autonomous organization. 52 years ago, during one general assembly in, uh, I believe, in Geneva for the WHO, uh, then President Charles de Gaulle pushed hard to make a scientific research center in Lyon the WHO seat for cancer research. And, well, what happens at a lot of these plenaries for the WHO, it was voted on. The WHO agreed to recognize IARC as an agency for cancer. But it is essentially funded by its 26 members and uh, is making its own decisions uh, the WHO couldn't clean up the mess that IARC is in presently now, even if they wanted to. They have no um, authority over it. But IARC is very quick to claim 
on the coattails that they are a UN organization in WHO, but essentially it's a, it's a private club. And, and that is frequently brought up, you know, as this is this World Health Authority that most people give some credibility uh, that made this decision. But what exactly was the decision and how did it affect this particular herbicide? Well, the decision, uh, in fact, to say that it is a carcinogen means that it has the potential uh, as a carcinogen. Uh, but you have to understand that it is a hazard assessment that IARC conducts. If you ever wonder why only IARC says that glyphosate uh, is a probable carcinogen and all other uh, risk assessment authorities say it is not, uh, it's because what IARC does is different. They do a hazard assessment. They don't do a risk assessment. And there's a very big difference between those two. Um, a good example is a car. A car can be determined to be a hazard. Uh, it can kill people. But if I see the car out on the street and I'm inside in my house, I'm not exposed to the car. It's not a risk. Hazard plus exposure equals risk. So the only thing that IARC does is determine that this substance can be from a hazard-based approach, a carcinogen. Now, how am I exposed to this substance uh, and at what level of exposure? That's up to the risk assessors to determine. And then they decide how to manage that risk. In the same way they put stop signs on the streets uh, or traffic lanes that uh, keep cars apart from each other, that's called the risk management process. IARC isn't concerned about this. So they could say that glyphosate is a carcinogen, and even that apparently was not very well done from the point of a hazard assessment. But that says nothing about the level of exposure, who's exposed, when, and how can this be uh, prevented. And most people don't understand that. Oh, you're exactly right. But what about the data? I and mean, what data did they use to really come up with the conclusion of uh, hazard? Well, they, um, they like to say that they only use data that's published um, and uh, published in a peer review process. Uh, that, of course, is a lie. Um, they uh, will use uh, non-published data uh, whenever it seems to suit their interests. A good example is if you look at uh, many of the monographs, like on welding fumes, for example, I believe, they have for all of the panel members coming a uh, confidentiality uh, document they have to sign because they will be looking at and considering unpublished data. Uh, but with glyphosate, they said quite simply they're not uh, they're using, um, they're not using uh, data that hasn't been published because a lot of the data that they had available to them was either uh, industry uh, data that had been collected for the purpose of the risk assessment process or rather large documents like the uh, American Agricultural Health Study, uh, which showed quite conclusively that glyphosate was not in any way a risk. Um, and the, um, the chair of the uh, glyphosate monograph, Aaron Blair, was working on that study and knew that information, but for some reason decided that it was not relevant because it was too much information to publish at the time, I believe. <laughs> too much information that didn't support your conclusion, I guess. 
Activist science, despicable people. <laughs> Activist science. But there's other political overlays to this in the composition of the committee and some of the personalities there. Um, what's the story with uh, Chris Portier? It's sometimes beggars belief that uh, nobody found this information in any way scandalous. Uh, and to this day, he's still appearing in court cases as well um, to testify. Essentially, um, if I understand very well, uh, Professor Portier uh, retired from his uh, roles as a uh, regulatory scientist and um, essentially uh, took six months of, uh, uh, well, he, he became a consultant, uh, I believe, for the Environmental Defense Fund. And then um, as a consultant, he took six months to work as a visiting scholar in IARC, where he worked on the monograph program under Kurt Streif. Now, what he ended up doing at that time uh, was essentially determine the next five years of IARC studies. That's, uh, they have an advisory panel, which uh, I believe a week after the end of um, Portier's six-month uh, stay there, he chaired as an independent scientist. It didn't say in this document that he was working for the Environmental Defense Fund. It just had his old affiliations at the time, even though IARC was very aware of it because they did publish that when they had the press release about the, press release about the visiting scholars. So, I mean, the very his very beginning, he'd, he'd been in and out of IARC over the years for different substances as his role as a regulatory scientist for the U.S. Uh, government, I believe in the NIH, NIEH, um, the ATSDR, I think, as well. So, this is a person that I look at uh, and understand to be one of the IR good old boys, one of those people who just kind of comes in and out regularly in these monographs and uh, participates in them and uh, uses that network. It's kind of tied to the whole Ramazzini uh, Institute and uh, the other sort of networks that these groups have. Now, he had, no, he had not worked on glyphosate before. Um, and had um, not published anything, uh, but he had come in as a um, expert advisor, external to the panel, but the only one uh, there. And so he was involved in all of the discussions, but not in the decisions, apparently. He, before going to the um, panel uh, meeting, um, for the monograph 112, which included glyphosate, he had been in contact with some law firms in the U.S. And uh, in fact, uh, he was uh, offering his services on something that he said was not related at all to chemicals. Um, and uh, we found out later that he was offering his services related to the po possibility of lawsuits from cancers from uh, mobile phones or cell phone exposure. Uh, but within seven days or nine days of the publication of the findings on glyphosate, he signed a rather lucrative contract with two different law firms that are still very actively involved as leads in the court cases now against, uh, well, former Monsanto Bear on Roundup. So this is going back four years now, I believe. Um, and uh, he, in fact, had not disclosed 
uh, his affiliations and that he was paid by these law firms for a lot of the activities that he was doing, and particularly when he wrote to the European commissioner uh, name of the 94 other scientists, which later we learned uh, were provided to him, the list was provided to him uh, by the uh, office of Linda Birnbaum. Um, so he, in fact, the letters were edited by her office as well, uh, but he did not declare any of this. Um, and of course, at the time, the big point was that big bad Monsanto was, you know, buying scientists and not being transparent. Uh, well, Chris was doing this all on his own. And uh, he was essentially the pointsman for the law firms to make sure that the IARC study uh, stayed credible and stayed relevant, the IARC conclusions, in order that the law firms would be able to have a legitimate scientific justification to uh, essentially, um, not, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, to feast off the rotting carcass uh, carcass of Monsanto. I don't know if that's a good way to put it. <laughs> no, it's just fine. I mean, that, I think the, the thing that comes to mind to me, though, is, you know, I can't turn on the computer without getting a dozen advertisements to be a, a plaintiff in litigation. I can't turn on the television without seeing advertisements of, you know, get in line for your cash settlement from Roundup. And do you, do you feel that these interactions really pl were all kind of predestined that this was kind of a preordained um, let's get this decision and then we'll be able to uh, fire into this, uh, this, this, uh, this entire tort offense against this uh, compound. Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. I mean, there, there's no, there's no other question to this. This has been a pure money grab. Um, the even worse and this is a charge I made in a blog, which to me was probably the most explosive expose uh, that I've ever released. Um, but unfortunately, because it probably, you know, legitimized Monsanto to a certain degree, um, most people didn't pick it up in the media. Um, the scientists working for these law firms or working with these law firms as litigation consultants, which pay them about $500 an hour. You have to you have just have to look at the money just from one case. You can probably a scientist will probably take home a cool two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Not to mention flying private jets and all expenses paid and everything else. But you 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 have to look at the facts that IARC was being used by a certain sorry cabal of activist scientists as a means to get decisions that they can then go back to the law firms they're working for. And the, the article that I wrote earlier this year in February on benzene, it's called The Benzene Bastards, uh, essentially looked at three scientists in particular who were lobbying IARC to do a third monograph. And they said very clearly, this is Bern, uh, Bernie Goldstein, said very clearly in the email that we're having a hard time suing people who have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, from benzene exposure because the last monograph that IARC had done, I think two years before, had not given a firm link with NHL. And so, of course, Kurt Strife said, well, I'm sorry, but that's not the procedure. We go through a normal advisory panel recommendations and everything else. Well, then these three 
what I call the benzene bastards, uh, lobbied IR Carter, and sure enough, they produced a monograph on benzene, which developed a link with uh, NHL. Well, the same thing happened essentially with uh, glyphosate. The original monograph 112 was supposed to be on different, I think it's um, uh, different uh, insecticides. Um, Calathion and uh, I think it was one and yeah. something else. The, yeah. the, which had completely different structures than a herbicide, uh, particular glyphosate. Now glyphosate was added onto that one, not in the original draft. You go back to the original call for the original uh, panel where they were looking for people who were interested, glyphosate wasn't mentioned. And then suddenly afterwards, the title changed, and it was and glyphosate. And then, well, nobody even knows what the results were on the insecticides anymore, because the whole point was it was added because of influence of scientists lobbying uh, the, um, the IARC to put it on, and these scientists were working with law firms at the time. Now, you have to understand as well that the tort industry itself has been going through some... Um, sort of hard times recently. I mean, uh, the tobacco money is slowly drying up. Uh, there's not that much. I think a lot of the asbestos companies are out of uh, are out of business now, although some of the funds are still being used as personal bank accounts by groups like Wrights and Luxembourg, for example. But you have, um, you have at the end, uh, an industry that needs a new cancer and needs to be able to find a new source for the cancer in order to get a revenue. You can't make and uh, stay out of the strip mall if you only have rear-end collisions and drug overdoses. And so what hap what's happened now is that the tort industry has discovered IARC to be a rather useful place to determine a source of a cancer. They did this quite clearly and quite actively, proactively with benzene. Um, we see that with glyphosate. We see this with talcum powder. Uh, now, it was originally supposed to be the asbestos and talcum powder, but the whole point of the IARC study, which was non-conclusive actually, uh, has been the source now of about 18,000 court cases against Johnson & Johnson and Colgate, Palmolive, I think, and others, um, based only on the IARC monograph on talcum powder. And it, it, it's essentially a money spinner. And most of the scientists from the U.S. who go there, who all have ties in some way to either Linda Birnbaum or the Ramazzini Institute, both actually, um, are going there to uh, have their credibility uh, put in place so that they can then turn around and serve as litigation consultants for these law firms. Now, $250,000 is not bad for um, you know, preparing uh, some documents and uh, and, and you know, testifying. If you think of eighteen thousand four hundred cases against Roundup presently, another eighteen thousand or so uh, against uh, Johnson Johnson on talcum powder. You start looking at other cases, benzene welding. If you start adding these up, the scientific community no longer needs to go lecture in universities anymore. It's outrageous. No, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it, it is pretty amazing that all of this is being done on such thin evidence. But, you know, let me flip this around on you. You know, what is your evidence that this is happening? And where do you get your information about, you know, the, the behind the scenes stuff at IARC and the, you know, the payoffs of Portier and all that stuff? Where do you, where is that accessible? Well, I'd like to thank my good friend, um, 
Ruskin because he publishes all the information from all of the different uh, documents that come out uh, re regarding the Roundup trials. And what Gary Ruskin did is he put Portier's uh, testimony for the Dauberg hearing uh, on uh, on his website. And so I didn't even have to go and pay for it. Um, thanks, Gary. Um, and it's really quite fascinating when you think about it that it, this information is there. Uh, the information on the emails that was, uh, that was released, uh, I believe, during a freedom of information request. Um, you have this information there, but the media, the media is not interested because no journalist today will want to be seen to be defending a company with a rather bad public image. It has nothing to do with honesty. It has nothing to do with evidence. It has nothing to do with information. It's quite simply, uh, editors make their decisions. If it can put industry in a bad light, it's a good thing. If scientists are behaving badly and unethically with these slimeball tort law firms, um, many of which, by the way, are Scientologists, uh, are, you know, and that somehow is okay. I'm sorry, it's not okay. Yeah, one of the examples I show in my talks is the uh, Guardian article from December of 2018 by Aaron Brockovich, and we've done a podcast on this too. But here's somebody who on who's writing articles claiming that there is a concrete tie to cancer, which no one's ever demonstrated, and a um, and that people are consuming this on their carrots, beets, and quinoa. Which, if you've ever sprayed carrots, beets, or quinoa, would Roundup doesn't work so hot. Um, and they, they don't grow too well. Um, and, and then, you know, she writes this article, it gets hundreds of thousands of, of impressions. And then um, turns out that she's an environmental consultant for Weiss and Luxembourg. So she's out doing the recruiting of plaintiffs for this, for this work, for this uh, legal environment. <laughs> They'll, they'll turn around and say it's about the plaintiff. It's it's not about the plaintiff. They're, the, the, the plaintiffs are bigger victims after they're done with these things. I've yet to really see a list of plaintiffs who praise their tort, tort law firms for how wonderful they've been treated. Um, generally, um, in fact, there, there's a whole industry. I, I've been doing this uh, series now for almost a year since I, I my, my, my eyes opened up after the whole Chris Portier thing. Uh, where you started to realize how much money he was being paid. At one point, it was 160000 He's well over a million probably now. Uh, but I started to look at how the law firms use scientists, how they basically buy and sell them. They buy and sell as well their plaintiffs. You talk about all the ads that you see. Those are the most expensive ads that you'll find anywhere in the world of uh, marketing and publicity. Uh, the... I think 24 of the top 25 prices for clicks online are related to tort law firms. Uh, and it's costing them an enormous amount of money as well. So they need to get money back. So when they sign up plaintiffs, they begin to trade them around. So many people who are being represented in courts today probably aren't being represented by the first law firm that brought them in. So they'll, it became, they're commodities that are bought and paid for. Uh, essentially, the scientists as well. You just find a scientist who can tell you that it is possible. You know, uh, with 
non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for example, there are scientists now who will say it is possible for you to, you know, be exposed to a chemical and get cancer six months later, and it's because of that. And if you can find a scientist to say either it's not impossible or make it look that it's, you know, it, it can happen, then that's all the evidence you need. The NGOs as well are being bought and paid for. Many of these law, uh, law firms are running their own NGOs out of their own law firm as well. Uh, and the next chapter um, in uh, a series I call Slimegate is going to look at how um, law firms uh, like the Metzger firm are running this NGO cert right out of their office. And it's it's meant to be a non-profit uh, that is technically not part of the law firm, but sharing in the wealth of the profits that uh, they're able to pull in. These are Proposition 65 bounty hunters. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And, you know, and we're talking with Dr. Uh, David Zarek, and he's a professor at Odyssey College University in Brussels, Belgium. And we're talking about uh, Slimegate. Well, actually, we're talking about the glyphosate situation from the political side. We've talked about the science, the regulation, and all of that stuff before. Today, we're talking about the unsavory politics that have been going into shaping the legal actions that are currently um, piling up in our courts. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. I just hate going to the store. All of these labels, free range, GMO free, certified Chernobyl radiation safe. It's so confusing, especially in the area of food technology. Well, hi, lady shopper. I couldn't help but overhear that you were showing signs of distress about food and farming. Yes, strange guy I don't know. I'm concerned. I don't want biotechnology, synthetic biology, or precision agriculture in my food. Mother Nature gave it all the precision I need. Wow, you seem indeed lost and confused. Why do you feel this way? Well, for years, I've listened to these luminaries, Food Babe, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Avocado Wolf. But now I wonder, are they for real? Do I need certified GMO-free salt? Does salt even have genetics to modify, random stranger? If only there was a concise book that explained it all with reputable science that I, a person without a science degree, will totally understand. Wait, I need to introduce you to Food 5.0. Food 5.0? Is that, is that gluten-free? Well, sort of. See Food 5.0 with a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, a new book by Robert Syke. Sounds interesting, random science man. Tell me more. Well, the book is a substantial science-based book looking at modern farming. It's written for everyone, the average person that has concerns or just wants to know more about food or farm technology. From genes in the field to sensors on the farm, it's really a great book. I have a copy right here. Indeed, this looks like a comprehensive work that may challenge my assumptions and answer so many questions. Thank you, random grocery store stranger! No, thank you for challenging your own pitifully misplaced beliefs. And reach out to Rob or even the Talking Biotech podcast host if you have any questions. Will do. Imagine, there's something other than coffee at the grocery store that will make me feel smarter. Find Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, on Amazon or from wherever you can buy books, if there are such places anymore. And hurry before food activists buy them all and burn them. 
This is a needed piece of work that has a place in helping people understand what's on their plate and how it got there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, We're speaking about the IARC decision and what has gone into that and some of the political maneuvers that have occurred uh, to bring the glyphosate trials and the glyphosate issue to the forefront of public consciousness. And we're speaking with Dr. David Zarek. He's a professor at Odyssey College University in Brussels, Belgium. And, you know, we were speaking before about attorneys and scientists who were in this. I've actually been contacted by law firms who have asked me for, you know, my thinking on the, on the information. And um, I've told them that I'm, you know, I don't support the, uh, the conclusion of cancer. And these are all uh, plaintiff's attorneys. And, um, others that have suggested that I could um, potentially be very helpful if I had a change of heart. <laughs> and, and it shows you how slimy this is really getting. I, I mean, there, there will be some scientists out there who will be happy to, uh, you know, bend the truth a little bit probably, or, you know, they'll find somebody oh, out there um, or some of the folks who are the true believers who have credibility in their circles. It, um, I don't doubt that. It, it really is something to see how, um, how outrageous some of their actions are and uh, particularly the money that they're getting and the money that they're actually spending on things that, and that there's a whole, I mean, there's so many elements going on here that we don't see and don't understand. One of the things that's important to realize as well is that the the whole tort law process is not following a norm, the normal regulatory process. It's following the, you know, I think how the, um, in, in America, you've got the three arms, uh, you know, obviously. So you've got the, uh, the regulatory arms, but the, the courts are regulated by the judiciary. So they're, they're under another set of rules. And so while a regulator may have to regulate on a substance for public safety, that has nothing to do with how the judicial process is regulated. Now, one of the things that I find quite interesting is that you have... Now, of course, you've got the greedy people who are out for the money. And, uh, and those are... Uh, you know, the, those are the lowest of the low. And I, I, I've met a few of them at conferences afterwards. Um, they, well, they don't like me, but anyway. Um, I generally just look at them almost ashamed that they're in the room. But then you've got the true believers. Uh, and some of these regulatory scientists, and I think many of them are at their retirement age now, we're working in the, um, the whole... Uh, Washington regulatory scene at the time when the tobacco companies were able to continue to sell while the scientific evidence was very clear that, you know, smoking gives you cancer. Now, they have discovered that the regulatory process doesn't do a very good job protecting the public. It's, uh, it's a democratic process. It's based on consultation. There are other elements that come in. And so some of them have sought an alternative. Uh, and in fact, um, Bernard Goldstein refers to it as adversarial regulation. In fact, he's given quite a few talks about it. And he seems to think that the much more efficient than having science through a risk assessment process is to go through the judicial process, sue the hell out of the companies until they either stop making the substance 
our product or go out of business, preferably both. Now, what happens in this situation then is that you have these scientist vigilantes running around deciding that they're going to settle some old scores. I'm not sure that's how scientists should behave. I'm not sure they're taught that in ethics class when they're students, and I'm not sure it's a very democratic process. Uh, Goldstein even gloated at one time. It's much more efficient. He gave the example of FIFA. They were trying to go through the normal process to clean FIFA up, and nothing worked. You haul them all into court and arrest them, and suddenly FIFA's clean. Uh, I'm not sure hauling people into jail is actually a good historical uh, image to give to say that this is the best way to do things. But these true believers now look at the uh, regulatory process as something that fails and going through the courts is going to give them a much better way to protect and save people's lives. It really is ironic because, you know, and I, I mentioned this about, I saw the... Um uh, the one plaintiff, his or one uh, attorney, I can't think of his name right now from the uh, San Francisco cases, Wisner, and um, yeah. he he was very had a tremendous hubris that he was able to basically play heroes, victims, and villains, and say I was able to take the most evil company on the world and and convince a jury of twelve people that you know that they were that their that this poor man was harmed. It it wasn't. Somebody saying, you know, here we looked at the evidence carefully and came up with a distillation that we could easily explain to a, a, a crowd of lay people and have them come up with a, a scientifically based decision. He was proud of the fact that he manipulated them and that 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 was his form of justice. No, oh, he's, he's shown up in Canada with um, also with uh, Michael Baum, um, the, who's... Well, they're both Scientologists, by the way, but the Michael Baum, I think, actually managed to save himself from being arrested with this whole big scandal at one point in the Church of Scientology. But he showed up in Canada with the Friends of the Earth leader. He's been in Brussels as well in the Parliament. They marched a few cancer victims from the U.S. Uh, with them to... Uh, so they're, they're not just in the courtrooms. They're, they're playing the whole predatory uh, playbook. If you can get if you can get the substance banned, it's going to make it easier for uh, juries to convict. If you can get the company to be hated and vilified, you know, give a few hundred million to uh, some NGOs to to run campaigns to completely make the public outraged that these companies exist. Uh, what they're doing is they're destroying trust, trust in the regulatory process, trust in the science. Uh, trust in uh, industries and companies that bring innovative products to people. The only thing they're doing for the money they're getting is completely destroying the um, the social fabric. Well, and destroying trust in independent science, uh, depending, uh, de destroying trust. Um, and the one that bothers me is using people who are critically ill as a way to generate income. Um, and, and, you know, these class action suits, ultimately, if they have 18, what they're counting on is a settlement where the 18,000 plaintiffs bring in $10 billion, the attorneys and law firms take home seven of that, and they split the remainder amongst the plaintiffs and everybody takes home $14.80. Um, yeah. That's the way these things work. And I, and I, it really is amazing to see how the, how the, how the, people have been manipulated. How much do journalists play a role in this process? 
they don't understand the process. They don't. The journalists are busy doing different things, and uh, I generally find when I'm speaking to journalists, I have to speak slowly and um, try to explain things. Uh, a good example that I, I see today. Uh, by by the way, the um, the the way the um, the tort lawyers uh, consider themselves is that they're protecting consumers. They're actually the last people protecting consumers. The consumer is the one who's got to pay. Uh, I actually have fairly good medical coverage here in Belgium because we don't have a tort system built on sort of vindictive fleecing of society. So your medical coverage and your health care is uh, probably the most expensive in the world and uh, for most of the population in the U.S., well below uh, world standards, simply put, because everyone's paying litigation insurance in the process. And so if you think the consumers are going to be um, protected by these people, it's uh, it's a far cry. I spoke to a reinsurer where I said these court cases are coming. And she knew very well the situation. She said, well, that's okay. We have enough time. It, it, the litigation insurance that these companies have is what is going to be paying for these lawyers to fly private jets. Um, the people who are going to have to pay for these ultimately will be the farmers and the consumers. So you will get, like healthcare, you will be paying far more for your food and get far lower quality after the uh, tort law firms are done. But these consumer groups who are out there working with these law firms don't quite get it. I think they do, they just don't want to admit it, that they're actually the last people helping the consumers. How much do the um, NGOs play a role in this whole thing? Well, it's a, there's a two-pronged attack, really, that the law firms have used. They're using the scientists to come in with certain evidence that they can then link to a cancer. Um, but um, there is another element, and they're very upfront about it. They're, in fact, they, they, they wrote it down, that you need to be able to have the NGOs continually hammering into the companies in order to create this public outrage and anger uh, which will then lead to higher settlements and more money. Um, and they had this document. In fact, it's recently been called the La Jolla Playbook um, because there was a conference back in, I think it was 2012 in La Jolla, California, that brought together NGOs, lawyers, um, some scientists, uh, and the idea was to look at how tobacco or the tobacconization process was successful and essentially do the same thing to other industries. They were looking in particular at climate change and how, how can they sue Exxon, for example, to pay for all the damage from climate change. Basically, they wanted to get the fossil fuel industry uh, out of business. And the best way to do that was through lawsuits, endless lawsuits like what worked with tobacco. They wrote it all down in this 30-page summary of their conference. So it's, it's, it's stunning to see that they're so open about it. But the NGO's job, quite simply, is create the public outrage, create the anti-industry sentiment. So these people who are using all the technologies uh, that are... Um, uh, that uh, giving them benefits are now cursing all of these companies because they've basically been bought into these social media campaigns from these activist groups. So just saying and, and Monsanto terrifies, but Monsanto's not even a company anymore. The name is the name is now uh, you know a, a historical name, but I, I see it in my headlines from emails from these people every day. 
Yeah, that's pretty true. I mean, they still have to keep that image um, of the the weight of that company name because it still affects public perception. You know, you say it's Bayer, people think, hey, they make the aspirins. I like yeah. them. You know, it, it, does, it doesn't have the same uh, uh, weight because it hasn't been stigmatized as hard as, as others. Well, they're trying. They keep bringing in IG Farben and you know Hitler and everything else. These are the most despicable people I've ever met. You know, well, it really is. It's really amazing, and especially our you know NGOs like our old buddies at uh, at um, USRTK. You mentioned Gary Ruskin, but you look at folks who um, like Carrie Gillum, who is paid by them, but from their industry supporters to um, really throw. to throw the issue under the bus. She's written, you know, the book about it, which people have taken apart very systematically. She writes in the guardian on a regular basis and is really providing non-scientific information that castigates the chemistry as well as the uh, bends, what the decisions mean from things like IARC. And she's also really vicious about scientists and other people who uh, stand in the way of their mission. And I know you've had some uh, uh, interesting interaction with them. I have something that I call the hypocrite hypothesis. And for me, the, uh, the idea is quite simple. At a certain point, someone wake up and realize that everything they've been criticizing, they actually are doing themselves. I don't think Carrie and Gary are there yet. Uh, just to give you an example, they're attacking Monsanto for having lobbyists posing as journalists. Well, Carrie is a lobbyist. She's a paid lobbyist for US Right to Know, and she poses and signs off as a journalist all the time. They're also talking about how um, you know Monsanto would pay some money to some university professor somewhere. I don't know where it was, but I heard that they really, really were outraged by this amount, 25000 Well, I was looking at their latest IRS uh, declaration for 2018, and U.S. Right to Know has paid 134000 U.S. dollars to an unnamed European entity to write scientific articles. Okay. Now, I've been trying to get Gary to give me the name of this person. He hasn't. He's sent me to places where the Arnold Foundation, which is basically funding now uh, U.S. Right to Know, uh, essentially, um, you know, essentially through U.S. Right to Know, but they're, they're using their own name rather than U.S. Right to Know. Not quite transparent there. Um, but he has yet to show me where that 134000 has gone. I asked, is it Paul Thacker? He didn't say. Um, so, and at the same time, so while he's buying scientists to try to get credibility, um, or journalists, he doesn't, he doesn't say, um, we're not supposed to ask him. Well, I don't know, Gary, I kind of have a right to know. <laughs> you know, the funny part is that a uh, university professor you're ta- you're maybe referring to um, never even got a penny of that money personally, and even in their program, that fund was funds were all diverted elsewhere after uh, after the USRTK coordinated New York Times article. And uh, how, how long will people wake up to this sense that these these hypocrites are just doing far worse than anything else? I, I mean. Well, it was so funny because and we haven't really talked about this anywhere, but um, for probably, so right when the New York Times article came out, he was not the first um, 
reporter to contact me and many other, con- many other contacted me for the next few months. And, um, they all wanted to know, they were all commissioned by Gary and they said, Oh, we have, we have these emails in our hand and we want to know, you know, how you were, you know, on the payroll to do the, and I'd say, did you get these from USRTK? And they would say, well, yes, we did. And I said, well, you want to know the real story? And I would tell them the real story and they would all go, oh, we can't do a story on that. You know, so they were smart enough to not fall for it. There only was a handful of uh, reporters who were bloodthirsty or stupid enough to roll with the NGO. And now they're looking really bad years later in retrospect. And the same thing will happen with glyphosate. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, um, I mean, there are many things I hope will happen as this case unfolds. But I mean, U.S. right to know's behavior here has been, um, I, I, I hazard to say, unaccountable. But um, I would, I also think, quite honestly, illegal. I mean, I don't know if an American uh, nonprofit is allowed to use certain funds to lobby in Europe. I, I, I believe I was told that that's illegal. But I, I leave that to some lawyers in the U.S. to sort out. Um, maybe they might lose their status. But the, I mean, when you look at some of the things, like I say, they, they've been buying journalists. They've been paying off people to say things. Paul Thacker came out with this one article one time against Coca-Cola, and then they added a correction afterwards where he said that all of the information was provided by U.S. Right to Know. Now, nobody reads the correction to the articles. And so, uh, you know, so they're constantly giving information to journalists. But when Monsanto does it, it's terrible. They, the day that the EPA came out with um, the decision to no longer tolerate uh, demands to label glyphosate products as a carcinogen, uh, they knew that was coming, so they went on a blitz with three articles. Uh, one uh, which basically savaged a journalist, uh, that was once again through their Patsy Paul Thacker. Uh, one was um, from somebody, Levin, who's done lots of articles with Kerry for The Guardian, uh, which uh, tried to paint this um, fusion center and these terrible things that Monsanto was doing. Uh, poor Neil Young was having his Twitter page monitored. Well, I'm sorry, but that cantankerous old goat basically did an album called The Monsanto Years. If I worked at Monsanto, I'd probably want to know what he's saying on Twitter. Well, I don't think it's that outrageous. Um and one about Carrie just lamenting about how she's such a victim being attacked by Monsanto all the time. Um, yeah, they were trying to reclaim the narrative and not have people notice what uh, the EPA had decided. This is lobbying 101. I used to be a lobbyist before many years back. I know very well all the tricks. And U.S. Right to Know is simply put a really bad lobbying organization that has no shame at all about what they're doing. And but this this is really so much of an uh, descriptive of the deception that is present and the hypocrisy that's present across the glyphosate story. And if you had to make a prediction about where it's going, what do you think's going to happen? Do you think that 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 the courts will wake up, that science will win the day, or do you really think that this could be the end of a very useful agricultural chemical? Well. There are days when I'm um, optimistic, and then there are normal days where I get back to my sort of dark outlook, and it's going to be really bad. Um, Quite simply, I don't think any company's been able to survive such an onslaught, and that's the whole point. The reason they continue to advertise, these law firms advertise on TV for more victims, is they figure that there is no way at all 
that a company could possibly endure such a, an amount of um, pressure from court cases and particularly not so much the company but the shareholders because obviously the bear uh, stock has gone down significantly in value since they uh, bought Monsanto and so this this is the prayer that the tort industry and everyone who's feeding off of them is hoping that they will settle uh, sooner rather than later to save the company. Same with Johnson & Johnson, but I have a funny feeling Johnson & Johnson on talcum powder, it's a little bit different because they're convinced and they are definitely going to uh, be able to overturn any of the decisions on talcum powder on appeal. And in some cases, the most recent case, the jury threw out the case and after 30 minutes of deliberation on uh, cancer co uh, coming from talcum powder. Now, what happens when you have 15,000, 18,000 cases uh, and the company decides to go through each of them? Well, these little law firms don't have the revenue or the financial basis to support 10 years of litigation where they're not taking any money. There's something called litigation finance, which is essentially free money, which is not at all transparent. It doesn't come out in discovery. Uh, and there are these, these litigation finance firms now that are lending according to cases. So you can actually invest in the glyphosate cases if you wanted. Uh, you'll be completely non-recognized. So if you're a competitor to uh, Bayer, for example, that doesn't make glyphosate, makes an alternative. You, it would be good for you to invest in these cases. But you're getting 20% a year interest, which is not bad. The law firms can't continue to pay this. So my prayer is that these companies hold tight to respect the science. And after about two more years, these tort law firms are all going to be in financial problems. Some of the tort law firms actually lend to other tort law firms. So it would be quite interesting to see what happens. That's the only way I can see things happening. Um, otherwise... You know, Bear will probably settle. And of course, uh, like you said, I, I, in fact, I don't think the, I don't think the 18,400 cases that are presently up, I don't think these plaintiffs will receive more than um, a couple hundred euros or, sorry, a couple hundred dollars. I guess the other point on this is that does having eight, and as part of the predatory uh, tort part of this, to compile as many plaintiffs as you can, because if you can get, say, 20,000, 100,000, that the insurance folks who are, who are backing the, uh, the decision and the payouts that they would be liable for, the companies would be liable for, do the insurance companies say, hey, look, you go past this, we can't insure you anymore. We can't cover the decision. So you have to settle now. This has already happened. Um, glyphosate was also used uh, in the uh, golf um, uh, industry. Uh, it was used to you know, clean weeds out on fairways, obviously. Uh, and uh, several suppliers to the different golf courses said, we're no longer going to be supplying glyphosate. So this, is, this, was already, uh, th this is already happening. And it was purely on the basis that they couldn't get insurance uh, for litigation uh, cases. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this is going to th th this is my fear. Um, what are the consequences going to be? Um, you uh, first of all, we have to look back at what glyphosate is about. What the, the the whole outrage on glyphosate has nothing to do with human health issues. Um, I haven't seen any cases yet with farmers coming forward. Most of the people have been gardeners or groundskeepers. I think, if I understand at the moment, most farmers understand how glyphosate is useful and um, 
the it's not just about Roundup Ready. Um, in fact, that's the reason why the anti-GMO uh, campaigners came to Brussels. I mean, they can't they can't ban GMOs in the U.S. So if they can ban GMO, uh, they can ban um, something that makes GMOs valuable, meaning glyphosate, uh, in Europe, then uh, they'll be able to turn around and either stop the trade uh, with Europe or um, maybe use that as a basis for further litigations uh, in the U.S. But how is glyphosate used in Europe, though? Um, it's used for very sustainable agricultural practices. Uh, No-till farming is becoming more and more popular now, and it's probably the best, most sustainable way to protect the soil. I'm not talking about uh, how the organic uh, or the permaculture people talk about regenerative uh, farming. I'm talking about how you can have no-till and be able to preserve uh, not just uh, from erosion, uh, not just from soil biota, but you're looking at being able to essentially grow the soil. And I'm looking now at more and more uh, farmers experimenting with cover crops where they're able to even predict according to their rotation what insects would be prevalent and plant cover crops that can allow them to use less uh, or fewer insecticides in the coming season while they're also nourishing the soil uh, at a much better rate and then just not tilling once the cover crops have done their bit which by the way is also providing nutrients for bees during the off season and during the winters. You're taking the substance out so the farmers can no longer farm sustainably. Well, well, I guess the other question that I, always comes to mind for me is that if you can get bans on neonicotinoids, if you can get bans on glyphosate, you're taking the two most innocuous compounds off the table. You're taking things off the table that have the lowest environmental impact and very minimal toxicity to non-target organisms. And so is it really an idea that if we can get these two, we can stop anything? Yeah, well... If I'm in a bar fight and there's six people coming at me from all directions, I'm going to punch the biggest one first. <laughs> so if you can knock out the most sustainable crop protection products, it's pretty easy to get rid of the other ones after. Uh, that's just, it's not about, it's not, I've got a blog coming out shortly called It's Not About the Environment. Uh, it's not about the environment, it's about winning. And these NGOs get paid when they win. Well, you know, David, you've been just such an outspoken proponent uh, for agriculture and for, you know, let's just say for reason. Um, how has this come back to haunt you personally? Well, uh, one thing, first of all, I, I wrote a series called I'm Insignificant. Um, I don't take myself very seriously, and that allows me to sort of not take other people seriously either too which uh, some people find offensive um but um yeah i've had uh, I, i've had situations i, I went I, I went to the monsanto tribunal um I, I had an event across the street from them the vandana shiva and uh, uh all these other great people ronnie cummins and that they all came to the hague to you know try monsanto for crimes against the environment uh, ecocide they call it and um I got dragged out. I mean, I, I brought some farmers in, and we had our own event across the street. The some some of the media came over and, and you know enjoyed understanding farmers use uh, these products. Um, but um, when we went in, they they dragged me out. They um, you know even though I had registered, um, 
I've had my blog shut down, um, essentially because I was getting too close, I think, uh, particular to certain Le Mans journalists uh, were feeling that they didn't really like, uh, at that time, a single voice going on uh, against uh, IARC. Um, and, uh, I mean, that, that actually allowed me to realize that I, I couldn't really trust anymore other people's editings of, of my work anyway. Um, but... What happened in particular is that there was a, another professor, my university that I was, I was only, I was an adjunct there, but um, a, it was being taken over by Louvain-la-Neuve where this uh, agroecologist uh, law professor um, had his own little, you know, territory. And um, he, he didn't like me much. He was, uh, he was involved in the Monsanto Tribunal and I, apparently... Um, Myself and a few people from March Against Myths Netherlands uh, made a bit of a mockery of their whole event. And so it was payback time. So he uh, got some nervous professors from San Luis to um, essentially push that I no longer be allowed uh, to, uh, to teach there on the basis of my position on GMOs and glyphosate. Uh, and this was at the time uh, shortly after... Um, uh, shortly after the European Commission uh, agreed to uh, to extend five years uh, the authorization on glyphosate, so he was he was pretty pissed off, um, and um, so essentially it got to this it got to a situation that um, uh, my my contract was no longer being renewed. Um, fine. Um, I don't play that way. Um, if this guy, if this guy sleeps well at night, his name's Olivier de Scooter. Uh, if if he sleeps well at night, behaving like a, like that, um, all power to him. Um, but you know, I I'm fine. Uh, you know, just because somebody gets fired, whether they're a professor or whether they're a Reuters journalist, uh, doesn't mean that they are going to have to spend the next five years on a vendetta of vengeance to try to get back at other people. Well, of course not. But I think the the point is the hypocrisy that the folks who are always playing the victim, saying that their scientists and teachers are silenced from teaching the truth, they're the ones who are the ones with the uh, uh, the, the the biggest wet blanket to put over the voices of reason. And we've seen this time and time again, whether it's, you know, your situation with the multiple things you're, you've endured or things like I go through where they just try to take your trust. They, you're, you, we go out and we tell the truth and we work hard to establish rapport with, with consumers and teach and help scientists and farmers be better communicators. But then they'll put stuff online that just takes it away. That says you can't trust him. And, you know, as my dad always said, you know, a thousand attaboys can be wrecked by one aw shit. And he's exactly right. And, and but it, it really illuminates the hypocrisy that you've had to deal with. And still you press on and your stuff is always good. And, um, you know, it, it takes a little time to get through sometimes because it's dense and it's complete. But, you know, I would recommend anybody checking out your um, blog or, or your Twitter feed or whatever. Where, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, I, I mean, if you just you know, Google the word risk monger, it should come up. But um, I, most, of my, most of my writings in, in English uh, are at riskmonger.com. And usually when they're translated into other languages, you'll see it at the top of each article. 
Um, you can find me at Twitter uh, with my last name, uh, so slash Zaruk, Z-A-R-U-K. And on Facebook, I'm under the risk monger as well. And I'm generally, I generally engage with people all the time. So if you send me a, a message, as long as I realize that you're being an authentic person, I will actually reply to you quite quickly. So Professor David Zarek, thank you so much for joining me today. This has really been a fun episode and it really illuminates the dirty underbelly of this entire conversation around an important agricultural chemical. Thank you very much, Kevin. I had fun. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, to anyone listening, you know, well, to the thousands of you who listen every week now, <laughs> um, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and any place you can put your verbiage because it's making a difference. Um, many people have said, you know, go ahead and start a Patreon account. And I'm not going to do that, but I want you to do as much as you can to spread the word. Plug it anywhere you can. Share it with friends. Write to podcast networks and request that they carry it. This is how we continue to spread the message. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.